Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the World's Nation podcast. In this episode, we're diving right back into our discussion with Frederick Taylor, as we look to discover more about the infamous raid on Coventry on the 14th of November 1940 by the Luftwaffe. What made this raid on the 14th of November on Coventry so important and prominent in the public consciousness and in the air staff thinking? It was dreadful raid on a fine city. To be honest, the reporting of Coventry, which was extremely clever on the part of the British propagandists, concentrated on things like the bombing of the cathedral. It did not concentrate on the bombing of, say, the Armstrong Sidley works, for instance. And so the fabric of what was a kind of mixture of medieval historic town and modern industrial city, which was in a sense what made Coventry interesting and and, and fairly unique at that time of the war, attracted the kind of publicity which could be especially well uh, sold in America, where, of course, all all Americans really ever saw was pictures of, of the bombed cathedral and so on. Coventry was an industrial city with a, a, a lot of history attached to it, and it's often compared with the bombing of Dresden, and Dresden was a historic city with a surprising amount of industry attached to it, which not many people admitted or knew at the time. Um, so they, they kind of meet a bit in the middle there. And Coventry became this iconic thing, this extraordinary city, and it was it was a fine city. There's no question about it. Um, pre pre war Coventry, and it became symbolic of an attack on clearly not just on factories but on morale and housing as well. Uh, it clearly was the beginning of a pattern which the Germans rapidly repeated in various other places, of Liverpool and Birmingham, Sheffield and and a couple of return trips to Coventry too. So the the pattern was established also of what you do. How do you do this kind of a raid on uh, a, a middling to large provincial city? And the Germans figured it out and they found the place. They sent in aircraft to drop flares or bombs at the heart of the bombing area and set fires which could then guide the rest of the bombers however many there were um, over a period of time this being night bombing uh, you could always see the fires and they would know where to bomb and that Coventry was the first big raid outside London of that kind and it enabled a pattern to be established which proved pretty successful and that seemed to be at that point in the war you thought okay they've cracked this they've they've, they've figured out how to do it the Luftwaffe certainly the British air staff thought so they looked at it and they thought oh okay I mean they had various words for it they had, crash concentrations was the fashionable word at the air ministry for a while and that was these you know concentrating a lot of uh, bombers in a limited area and really bombing what you could to bits. Oddly enough, you you know the, the phrase Coventry, Coventry it became used by the Germans to describe, you know, that kind of destruction of a of, of an enemy city. Uh, weirdly you find phrases popping up in British air staff discussions 
one weird one that I had to kind of look it up and find out was namsosed uh, was a phrase used uh, at, at a meeting after Coventry. Namsos turned out, I got to find out, to be a, a sort of considerable provincial Norwegian town in the north of Norway, uh, mostly made of wooden houses, which during the fighting in the spring of uh, an early summer of 1940 against the, the German, between the Germans and the Anglo-French expeditionary force in Norway had been bombed by the Lofapa and, and, and pretty much burnt to the ground. So for a while, Namsost, uh, his name was Namso, this place, uh, was the phrase used. So the British looked at it and thought, we could do this if we want to. Do we want to? But it really took another year or two and various other experiences, which uh, any person familiar with the history of Bomber Command will know about, including a bombing pause while they tried to figure out how to make it work, before the RAF really started to learn from Coventry and turn those methods, which they refined, uh, further refined, against uh, German provincial towns and cities, in, in particularly from 1942 onwards, and, and start what became known as the, the Great Bombing Campaign against Germany, which played such an important part uh, in the latter half of the war. So, yeah, lessons were learned. Uh, but the Germans basically were too busy from 41 onwards in Russia, bombing towns and army concentrations and all the rest of it to continue refining those techniques, which have been very much, uh, were just really calculated for the, the British campaign um, between September 1940 and May 41. But, you know, the likes of Arthur Harris learned those lessons only too well and refined in other words, outdid the Germans, so to speak, at their own game from 1942 onwards. Can you talk us through the events of this night and, you know, this like a minute-by-minute minute style picture of the Germans taking off from the aerodromes in France? They came from Brittany and they set off in the late afternoon, early evening and breasted the coast around sort of, you know, Dorset, Hampshire and headed over towards Coventry that way. They found no opposition, although the, it was a, a strong moonlit night. And the first aircraft hit Coventry uh, around seven in the evening. They went on and off during the night. The Germans, of course, the big advantage the Germans always had attacking from bases on the French coast was that it was quite a short trip. Once the British started bombing back in Germany, it was hundreds of miles. You get a place like Dresden or you know, as far as Königsberg, for instance, uh, the RAF later in the war, it was hundreds of miles. I mean, you, 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 it would take you five, six hours to get out there and five, six hours to get back. But if you're bombing from bases uh, on the French coast, you can go over, drop your bombs, go back to France, refuel and fly back again and either with Plenty of German aircraft uh, uh, did at least two runs uh, over Coventry uh, that night. So uh, the length of the raid had to do with this you know, shuttle bombing. I suppose you, you, you move back and forth between France and, and Coventry. So it went on pretty much throughout the night. There were short periods when there wasn't much overhead but by and large there were always German aircraft overhead during that night so it was uh, it was a long raid one of the horrors of the night one of the new things that had never been seen before 
uh, over any city uh, in the Second World War was the length of time that people had to sit in the shelters. I mean, you were sitting in the shelters from supper time on the 14th till um, early morning when it was getting light. Uh, on the 15th, which was which was unheard of. The Germans could do a lot of damage, but as Arthur Harris, who was a, a cold-eyed technician of that sort of thing, said, uh, in terms of the amount of power that the, the Germans put into bombing Coventry, it was very impressive, but in terms of timing, it was ineffectual. In other words, I mean, everybody knew by this point that what you really wanted to do if you were attacking a city was to create something approaching what later became known as a firestorm. In other words, you set up a conflagration that fed on itself and spread uh, through the, the area you were bombing, um, pretty much consuming everything in its path. So what Harris was saying was, OK, the Germans got that kind of concentration of high explosives over a period of time coming down on Coventry, but they left too much time between the detonation of the explosives. So, yes, it was terrifying. It went over all those hours and so on. But the fact is, if it had been a short, very, very sharp raid, it would have done a lot more damage. I mean, for instance, in, 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 again, in that big raid on the city of London and the East End after Christmas in 1940, for a start, there was low tide in the Thames, so the the, the fire brigade found it very hard to get water to fight the flames. Uh, and there was a terrific concentration of uh, destruction building up of flames and explosions of fire, uh, which could have approached uh, that of a, a kind of impressive firestorm, which would have devastated the city of London altogether. And then snow started to fall over the German bomber bases on the French coast. And so the aircraft, German aircraft couldn't make another run and come back and finish the job. So all that was known, and it was Coventry was an example of what happened, and it was disastrous by that stage, by standard of that stage in the war, and horrific and destructive. But it wasn't what might have been possible uh, had it been organised slightly differently. What were conditions like for those civilians caught up in this blitz in their city? Well, you you cowered, didn't you? You you. <laughs> You, you you stayed in the family shelter, whether it was in the garden or you stayed under the uh, under the stairs or under the uh, kitchen table or wherever it was that you uh, people had their particular habits and superstitions uh, about what to do. Yeah, it was awful. I mean, it is right to say that a civilian under bombing is very much a 20th century thing, a new horror that the 20th century bought, if you will, was you can't run away, you can't surrender. Uh, all you can do is sit there and hope for the best, uh, you know, with your kids and the dog and the, the most dreadful feeling of, of, of helpless horror is there. And then you, oh, the accounts you read, I mean, your neighbour's shelter suffering a direct hit and you feel it, obviously, in your shelter, too, because it's not that far away. And, frankly, there are body parts all over the next-door garden. That sort of thing is not anything that anybody, I suppose, outside of a siege city had ever had to experience before the 20th century. I mean, we're talking, you know, normal, quiet, suburban streets for the most part. Uh, because the German bombing was pretty indiscriminate and a lot of it was on the outskirts of the city. We're talking 
experience of of a new kind of horror. I mean, Warsaw had had it in September 39, and towards the end of September particularly. Rotterdam, although that was, there's a whole moot, series of moot points about the bombing of Rotterdam. London had had it, and now provincial cities like Coventry were going to get it, and Coventry was the first one to get it seriously. And uh, it's just, I, 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 having having interviewed and, and, and read about and a lot of people who went through that in both Coventry and in Dresden. I, 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 I just find it unimaginable, the feeling of, of, of I say, helpless terror that, that it must induce, because at least if you're a soldier, you can make some effort at fighting back. You know, I, I see it on the news, as we all do every night, sadly, somewhere, particularly in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, I, I think one just tries to understand what it's like. And it's still basically unimaginable, I think, unless it happens to you. We've all seen those iconic photos of the burnt-out ruins of St Michael's Cathedral. Can you hmm. talk us through the events behind this iconic image? As I said, the cathedral was in the centre of town and actually was quite close to factories, uh, particularly the Triumph factory. Whether it was bombed deliberately is impossible to say. I think it was just indiscriminate is the problem, or, or, or not wholly discriminate, should we say, the bombing. It happened in such a way that it was kind of gradual. Eventually, the bombs came in through the roof. And the weird thing about the Coventry Cathedral is that St Michael's, which had been a, a large and, and, and rich, uh, but nevertheless basically a parish church until I think end of the First World War when it was actually made into a cathedral because Coventry got its own bishop. A Victorian restoration of the of the church had involved uh, fitting sort of a metal metal structures in the ceiling, you know, iron basically, and weirdly it made things a lot worse because the cathedral, though medieval on the outside, was essentially Victorian on the inside with all these, you know, iron structures uh, holding the, holding the roof together. So in effect, what happened was that apart from the the problem we had with flames getting at the interior. With the heat, intensifying of the heat, these metal structures um, expanded and basically brought everything down. Eventually they collapsed and brought everything down in a way that a wooden medieval structure would have been different. I mean, it might still have had lots of problems, but this was a particular problem that the St. Michael's Church, later, you say recently St. Michael's Cathedral, had. Uh, and there was the water running out. I mean, they really, uh, they ran out of water. I think it was the, the firemen simply had no water for their hoses. Uh, so it didn't matter what you did. And so you just had to watch it burn. It was a terrible thing. And it proved such a powerful image, such a powerful symbol for perceived German barbarism that, uh, in effect, I think the cathedral on its own is probably the the main symbol of of of, of, of Coventry and what and what Coventry did in terms of its appearance on the world stage in November 1940. As I said, uh, uh, a scenario, a theatre for German ruthlessness. Call it barbarism, call it ruthlessness. It was certainly the latter, uh, at least. So. The cathedral went. It was a huge wound in the centre of the city. And cleverly, of course, after the war, uh, I think rightly, 
they left the shell and built the new cathedral next to it, which was, uh, I think, morally and, and spiritually true, and as well as being making a very powerful uh, political point. What was cold water in the British response to the raid? Well, the, the trying to bomb the German um, transmitters. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, <clears throat> yeah, that didn't really work either. I mean, they, they set off well, very early on. The Germans basically realised what was going on and switched them off. Uh, once they'd switched them off, you sort of couldn't find them. Uh, I think they got a couple of them, but it was another of those things where you overestimate, A, what you can do, because uh, they did find a couple of them, and B, what the long-term effect will be. I mean, it's like knocking out other infrastructure like railways. The fact is all these things can be replaced very quickly. And as it happened, it was the perfect night for, ma- for manual navigation to and from Coventry anyway, so it didn't even make any difference to, to, the, to the German bomber uh, fleet's activities during that night. But it was, it was nobly done, and, 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 and it was a gesture. I think a lot of this stuff is gestures uh, at this point in the war. And the same thing happened when the, when the British sent bombers to Berlin uh, as a planned response to whatever was going to happen. These, these, all these things had been planned because they knew there was a major German raid on his way. So these retaliatory gestures like cold water and like sending British bombers over Berlin um, had been planned in advance, even before they knew where the where the raid was going to be. So that's why they happened so promptly. Uh, it wasn't because specifically anything to do with what was happening in Coventry. These things had been planned. Again, the British bombers went over Berlin. Several of them were lost. I think it was one of the biggest losses of that point in the war, actually. But some bombs were dropped, and it could be trumpeted in the newspapers the next day, and was trumpeted in the newspapers the next day almost... On, on, a, on, on, a, on a parallel level with the bombing of Coventry itself, which was, of course, the first German raid of the war outside of London, where the city was specifically mentioned. Uh, that was a policy decision that was taken, because normally it would just be, you know, a, a city in the north of England or a city on the south coast, if it was Southampton, for instance. You wouldn't actually say where the city was, whether they thought they were keeping it from the enemy, but I mean, the enemy knew perfectly well what they'd bombed. So it 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 was, you know, that 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 was Coventry. It, it broke the mold in in various ways, but all these other things were 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 kind of symbolic, mainly symbolic retaliatory measures, as far as I could see, as far as one can ascertain. But I suppose they had to be done. You had, you had, you couldn't just sit there and take it and do nothing. Uh, but their effectiveness was very, very limited. What were conditions like for those living in Coventry in the immediate aftermath? And how long did rescue and clear-up operations take? And I guess key utilities to be restored. Well, things were rough. I mean, water, electricity, uh, all that had uh, had gone. And, of course, uh, the sewage had started to get mixed in with the water and, and, and all the rest of that because these things are laid very close to each other. And it was hard. Nobody starved, thank goodness, that was organised. There are one or two quite casual accounts of rather genteel looting occurring shortly after the raid when everybody was hungry and didn't know what to do. But 
basically you you had you had to put people up somewhere so various temporary shelters and people trekked out of uh, coventry towards relatives and and, and and other forms of emergency accommodation in 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 other parts of, of particularly Warwickshire, but also over into the neighbouring Midlands counties as well. And everybody wanted to get out of town. Everybody was afraid that the next night, of course, would bring uh, another raid, which 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 it might well have done. And from the Germans' point of view, probably should have done because they had done a lot of damage and they could have done even more and caused even more destruction to British morale had they come back the next night. But in the end, they didn't. So yeah, you had you had a lot of houses destroyed or so seriously damaged that they couldn't be immediately in, inhabited or re-inhabited, should one say. There was some panic. Uh, I think that's been overdone sometimes, reports of the panic in Coventry. Various people were knocking around like the mass observation people who saw what was going on and reported it back. I think the panic, such as it was, lasted a couple of days. When the Germans didn't come back the next night, that was a, that was a big thing, that, that people had a respite uh, and and chance to re- catch their breath, uh, recover their nerve and all the rest of it. But it was it was dicey for a couple of days. There's no question about that. There were a lot of unexploded bombs. Uh, they brought in a lot of uh, bomb dispersal crews, particularly naval uh, crews were brought in. It was bad. Um, and I think it was uh, quite salutary for the British authorities. London was one thing. It, it's an enormous place and it can take a lot of punishment. Same with Birmingham, actually. But a provincial city of... Uh, 250 odd thousand, depending how you estimate it, but had that amount of damage done to it and, and such a duration of being uh, under bombardment. That that that's that's a new thing. That 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 is that is everybody's watching to see what happens here. And Coventry did in the end survive. Coventry and Coventrians, by the way, were quite furious. I mean, there was a lot of stuff about. People really genuinely felt that they had been left exposed, which is probably what helped to nurture certain myths about Churchill and could Coventry have been saved and so on uh, later on. But no, people genuinely were furious that, that this appeared to be nothing the government could do against a German raid of this scale. Even the local newspaper, the uh, Midland Daily Telegraph, later the Coventry Evening Telegraph after the war, but at that time it was called the Midland Daily Telegraph actually published an editorial not that long after the raid, which was remarkably outspoken for the time. I mean, this was a Tory newspaper, usually quite loyal in its kind of uh, attitude towards whatever the government chose to do or not do. Uh, and, and it was quite furious. It said pretty much that Coventrians are, sort of, uh, are quite justifiably angry that uh, there appeared to be nothing that the uh, Air Force or the government or anybody else could really do against the German raid because there really was no, the Germans suffered almost no losses. As I said, the only one we really know about is the one that was shot down over Loughborough. And so there was a feeling of helplessness of being exposed to enemy aggression. It was a, quite a new thing. Uh, really, really, I mean, you know, London was the capital and expected to be bombed. Uh, Warsaw had been terribly badly bombed, but then that again was the capital and it was under siege. Uh, for a great deal of that time. But for a city hundreds of miles from the coast and a long way from Germany, 
to receive that kind of punishment was uh, unheard of, something new. It would happen again a lot in Britain and in, uh, more particularly in Germany, in the latter part of when the RAF really got busy. But at that stage, it was, it was really something very, very uh, new and terrifying and ominous. What were the casualty figures on the British side? Probably somewhere between, I think somewhere between 550 and 600. I think 568 is one of the figures I've got. It's surprising it wasn't more, actually, when you think about it. Again, it was partly down to the fact that the German attack was spread out over quite a long period of time. But yeah, it was it was it was somewhere around 600. There was no firestorm. There was there was there, there were areas of the town that caught fire, but they didn't turn into a larger conflagration that would have killed a great many people. I mean, in Dresden, for instance, a lot of people died not through explosives or immolation, but simply through the effect of the firestorm uh, sucking the air out of the shelters and leaving people with basically carbon monoxide poisoning. They found rows of perfectly, you know, normal looking people just with very, very pink faces uh, who were basically asphyxiated. That sort of thing didn't happen so much in Coventry. You needed something on a more spectacular scale for that to happen. But God knows it was terrible enough. In terms of the firefighters' experience, it wasn't just Coventry men, was it? How many people were involved in trying to tackle that blaze that night? People came from, from all over the Midlands. I'm, I'm from Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, and uh, I'm proud to say that the Aylesbury Fire Brigade made its way up the A41 and, uh, and, 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 and also uh, uh, showed up in, in Coventry and helped out. No, it, it, it was uh, uh, there was a lot of um, a lot of collaboration from other parts of the Midlands. I mean, the Birmingham Fire Brigade, for instance, came in, and the Birmingham Fire Brigade and Social Services also helped with the cleanup over the over the the next few days. And they were then, of course, immediately summoned back to Birmingham the next week because the Germans started bombing there as well. I mean, on a, on a, on a, on, on a fairly uh, spectacular scale, getting about 500 people were killed. So you know, it, it was it was a, it was a, a great example of, of people helping out, mucking in, call it what you will. Where were the worst hit areas? Was it fairly concentrated or dispersed over the city and at the Shadow Factories Fair? They were not that not that badly damaged. The Shadow Factories. It was it was the the ones in the city centre and, and the ones up lining the canal and going north that seemed to get the very worst of it. The damage was such that it looked really, really bad. Bombing always does, by the way. That's why you can never tell quite uh, from the superficial damage. You see, you, you see photographs and so on of, of cities that have been bombed, and you always assume that nobody can possibly have survived. But you don't know. It's the same as true with, 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 with Coventry and it was true with Dresden too. I mean, it looked as if absolutely nothing could have survived. And indeed, the casualty figures in Dresden were appalling, but not quite as much as a lot of people thought they must be. In fact, not nearly as much as a lot of people thought they must be. No, I mean, the, the fairly few factories were actually really completely knocked out. A lot of them were damaged. They could be repaired. I mean, things like restoration of water and gas and electricity, obviously they gave priority to factories and to various other parts of the kind of essential infrastructure of the city. So during the first few weeks after it, a big committee was set up with various industrialists and trade unions and so on involved and city officials, and they did a good job. 
the uh, I think a chairman of Roots was the headed it up, Roots the car company headed it up. And they did manage to get the city pretty much back in working order by the end of the year, uh, beginning of 41, which is, is pretty amazing when, when, when you think of the degree of damage that had been done. But, you know, it was amazing and as always and would remain throughout the war on all sides amazing how what appeared to be catastrophic damage uh, often could be repaired. I mean, things things like railways and so on, particularly railway lines. Uh, again, you can relay railway lines really very quickly once you've cleared the uh, the damage away, and that was to some extent true. Factories too, after all, they don't have to be beautiful. They have to be. You have to replace it with a functioning structure as quickly as you decently and safely, or reasonably safely, can. And that was the case in Coventry. I think. It was pretty much back in full production by the new year. The city changed slightly, of course, according to the degree of damage in various places. But by and large, that was true. Maybe that's why the Germans did actually bomb Coventry again uh, in April 41, over two days. And again, about 500 people were killed. And a lot of damage done to various factories that had not been damaged in November 1940. So it's a real example of... of which everybody later took to heart uh, on both sides, the German and the British side, of how you can say, oh, Coventry are disastrous, the, the British can't stand much more of this. If we keep doing this to their cities, they'll have to surrender. Well, that proved not to be the case. The weird thing about that, of course, was that the RAF, then uh, Bomber Harris was convinced that if we bomb the Germans enough, they would have to surrender too. He should have, to some extent, realised that if it didn't work on the British population, it might not work on the German population either, which it didn't. I mean, the, the, the German population was not alienated. Uh, it's a complicated thing, but just as the, the British population in places like Coventry basically took it, went through often quite a wobbly period as well as morale and general fear of things uh, went, and, and then came back. In fact, with, with a level of resentment against the people who had inflicted this bombing on them. And that was a lesson that was learned at Coventry, but weirdly, as I said, not applied by the British air staff to their attacks on Germany, which I think Harris really did think that you know he could destroy the morale as well as the uh, industrial capability of the German nation uh, if only he could bomb them enough. And I would have thought Coventry... Was a pretty early indication that, although, as I said, you could make people wobble, wobble quite badly sometimes, you wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, destroy them. You had to go over there, I'm afraid, and invade them, and 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 which is what the Germans, of course, should have done in the autumn of 1940, instead of uh, relying on uh, Goering's Luftwaffe to do the job for them. And it was pretty good proof that uh, bombing alone is not going to win the war. It can make crucial differences at various points, but you will not win the war alone on bombing alone. That's all we have time for now, folks. Thanks for listening. We do hope you found it of interest. The third and final instalment of our examination of the Moonlight Sonata operation will be out next week on the World Station podcast, and we'll be looking at the aftermath and fallout of this raid.